You're listening to the New Hope Church Podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in as today's talk comes from Randy Spate. Thank you so much for uh, choosing to take part of your busy day and spend it here with us as we worship the Lord. We've been looking at uh, Amos here last week and and again this week. Amos uh, is a prophet. He's from the southern kingdom of Judah and uh, he moves to the northern kingdom to prophesy to the nation of Israel. Now, um, last week we saw a little bit about that time. It's a time of incredible affluence. Everybody looks around and thinks things are going great, except for Amos. Amos is uh, kind of the, the fly in the ointment. Starting in chapter 7, he has uh, several visions. The first two visions are of destruction, desolation. And at the end of each vision, he says, oh, please, God, don't do that. God says, okay, I won't. But he comes then to the third vision, and he sees a plumb line. Now, Chrissy showed us uh, a plumb line. Here's another picture of it. Uh, This is a mason building a wall. The plumb line is a very low-tech instrument. It's basically a string and a weight. And you use that to show what is perfectly vertical. Low-tech, but so effective that it is still used today. This is a tool that masons will use to test that wall to make sure that it's everything that a wall should be. So Amos has a vision. Amos said, I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And so I answered, a plumb line. The Lord said, I will test my people with this plumb line. I'll no longer ignore their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. The temples of Israel will be destroyed. And I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Now Amos has sung this song before. He has told Israel before that they are sinning. There are two major sins in Israel. Idolatry is one. He talks about that again here. Injustice is another. But here, for the first time, he speaks out against the king. And he says, I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Jeroboam is going to die. Now, Amaziah is the chief priest of the false religion that is in Bethel, in the main religious 
center of Israel. He gets bent out of shape over this. And so he talks to the king. He sends a message to the king. He says, then Anamaziah, the priest at Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Aintless is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he's saying is intolerable. It's the first time that Amos actually speaks out against Jeroboam. So Amaziah, standing up for his king, tells the king what he's going to do. And then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here. Leave. Don't come back. Stop what you're doing. Everything's going good. Everything is fine. And there you are talking about how bad everything is. Shut up. Just get out of here. Leave. Go home. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your living by prophesying there. Don't Bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. So Amos responds. He says, Amaziah, I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. I take care of sycamore fig trees. Amos literally says, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Some of your translations will Use that terminology if you're following along. The New Living Translation says, I'm not a professional prophet. That is indeed what Amos was saying. I'm not a prophet. That's not my living. I don't make my living at doing this. And I'm not the son of a prophet. Now that has nothing to do with what his daddy did. It has everything to do with the training that he had received. Because the sons of the prophets were training schools where one would go to learn how to become a prophet. In the book of 2 Kings, Elijah the prophet had three different schools in which there were sons of prophets. Again, that's nothing to do with what their daddies did. That was the title given to an apprentice prophet. You actually had to go through training to become a prophet. They had to study hard. First of all, they had to learn how to read and write. Not everybody in Israel knew how to read and write. In fact, only about 10% of the people could actually read and write. But the prophets had to. They learned how to read and write because they were expected to write down everything that they said. Secondly, they learned Hebrew poetry. Almost all of the prophets are given in poetry. Now what that means is that when a person was called to be a prophet, he didn't just stand up and open his mouth and whatever came out was the prophecy. Oh no. He knew what it was that God was calling him to say. And so he took that and he crafted a presentation. He wanted the people to remember it 
so he wrote it in poetry. And then he would stand up, he'd memorize that, and he would stand up and he would speak poetry to the people. And it would stick with them the way that they were uh, hearing it. So he learned how to read and write. He learned about Hebrew poetry. He learned about Israelite history and good theology. Those two things are intertwined. He learned about how Israel was called out of Egypt, how God was faithful to Israel, and how Israel was increasingly unfaithful to God. And then maybe because of the poetry, most prophets also played a musical instrument. Now you look at the curriculum, that's, that's, that's pretty sizable. You had to learn how to read, you had to learn how to write, you had to learn how to compose poetry. You had to learn how to compose your thoughts and present them to people. You had to learn about the history of Israel, the theology of the Lord. You had to learn about a musical instrument. Amos looks at Amaziah and says, I'm none of that. I'm a shepherd and I take care of sycamore fig trees. Now Amos said earlier that he was from Tekoa. Tekoa's about three hours south of Jerusalem by foot. It's in the mountains, be a lot of sheep there. He was a shepherd. A shepherd was not like the upper echelon of employment in Tekoa. Now it wasn't the bottom, but it was kind of a mediocre job. It was what you would do if you didn't really have any other skills. Because anybody can take care of sheep. I don't know if you've ever taken care of sheep. Or I don't know if you have gone to the county fair or the state fair and walked through the sheep barn. Take a deep breath before you go in because you won't breathe again until you leave. It's nasty. You go in there and it's kind of dirty and sheep do what sheep do and it stinks. Amos said, I'm, I'm a shepherd. I take care of sheep. That's what I do on a daily basis. But there's about a month out of the year that I also tend sycamore fig trees. Now, if you've ever seen a sycamore here in the States, just throw that image out the window because that is not what a sycamore fig tree looks like. It's not the same genus even. This is what a sycamore fig tree looks like. It's, it's a fruit tree. It grows fairly tall, but the branches spread out. Here sycamores kind of grow up. Sycamore figs kind of grow out. And they produce a lot of little fruit, a little bit larger than a grape, but uh, certainly not as large as a plum. That's what they look like. Sycamore figs, like this, if you just pull them off the tree and eat them, you'll spit it out right away. It's, it's inedible because it's bitter. 
But if a month before harvest time you go through and you take a knife and you slit the bottom of every one of those little fruit, the bitter sap inside will drain out. And when you come back to harvest them about two weeks later, what you'll find is a very pleasant, sweet fruit. Now these fruit would not grow in the mountains where Amos lived. They wouldn't have grown in Tekoa. They needed a valley. They needed to be close to water. And they needed the warmth of the valley. So the major valley is the valley of the river Jordan that runs north and south in Israel. Most of the sycamore figs would grow in that valley. Do you remember in the New Testament the story of Zacchaeus? I even sang a song about it growing up. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, one of those, so he could see Jesus. Sycamores grew near Jericho. Now, that's about a day's journey away from Tekoa by foot. So when it was time for the sycamore harvest, Amos would travel a day away, and he'd probably just stay there. And he would spend his day as a fig slitter. Be careful. <laughs> and he would slit a hole in the bottom of each one of those figs. That bitter sap inside would drain. And then about two weeks later, he'd come back and he'd harvest those figs. Now he had to have somebody that he was working for. What this tells me is apparently he was not really making a go of it as a shepherd. Because for one month out of the year, he had to travel a day away and be a migrant worker, slitting figs and harvesting figs for about a month during the year. Amos said to Amaziah, I'm not the prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm just a shepherd. Not a influential position by any means. In fact, I work part of my time as a migrant worker. But the Lord called me. Amos 7.14, Amos replied, the Lord called me away from my flock and he told me, go prophesy to my people in Israel. <laughs> I was happy doing what I was doing. I was looking at the east end of a flock that was facing west, but I was happy and God called me. The Lord called me away from the flock. He said, go, prophesy. Now then, listen to this message from the Lord. And in the rest of that chapter, Amos goes on to say, this is what's going to happen to Israel. Here is what's going to happen to King Jeroboam and his family. And to Amaziah, 
this is what's going to happen to you and your family. And it's not nice. You can read about it at the end of chapter 7. The Lord goes on speaking to Amos. Amos goes on speaking to Israel. The next vision that he has is the vision of a ripe basket of fruit. You would think, well, that's good news. Plenty. Food for everybody. There is a ripe basket of fruit. But instead, Amos says, Israel is ripe for punishment. And God will now punish Israel. Then he begins to lay out what the punishment is. And as frequently happens, in fact, this is normal. The punishment is not God sitting in his throne, throwing out a bolt of lightning every once in a while to, to hit people with. Instead, God's punishment is he looks at his people and he says, you're sinning. I will allow the full effects of that sin to take control of your life. So in chapter 8, verse 11, God says, The time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Oh, but, but not a famine of bread, not a drought of water. Instead, I'll send a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. So what's happened? Amaziah's just told Amos, stop preaching. We don't want to hear what you're saying. Things are going good. Quit preaching doom and gloom. Go home, leave us alone. So in the next vision, Amos says, God has said, all right, that's what I'll do. You don't want to hear God's word. You're not going to hear God's word ever. You're going to look for it, and you're not going to find it because there's nobody to preach it. You've sent them all away. You've shut the door. You've stopped up your ears. You no longer listen to what God is saying to you. There will be a famine of God's word. Does that sound familiar to you? A famine of God's word. I think today we are living in a land that is suffering from a famine of God's word. In the year 2000, a man named Sven Erlinson wrote a book called Spiritual But Not Religious. He describes a growing group of people who want to be in a relationship with God but they've looked at the church and they've said, I won't find God there. They've looked at us. And they've said, I don't see them 
following God. So I'm not going to look for God there. They're spiritual. They literally do want a relationship with God. But they distrust religion. They will not look to religion to help them find God. So they're left on their own. And left to their own, they look for things that please them. It's like Bob read earlier. They look to hear whatever their itching ears want to hear. They look to any expression of God that makes sense to them, but without any objective authority. I believe there's a famine of God's word today. In 2012, the Barna Group, probably having read that book, Spiritual But Not Religious, did a survey. They surveyed America. What they determined was that in 2012, they simply asked the questions, are you spiritual and are you religious? They found that 58% of Americans, 59%, said that they were both spiritual and religious. 19% of Americans said they were spiritual but not religious. 16% said, I'm neither spiritual nor religious. And 6% said, I'm religious, I go to church, But what's his fool talk about having a relationship with God? I don't look for that. In 2017, just five years later, the number of Americans who identified themselves as both spiritual and religious, and that would be people like us. We are spiritual and religious because we do come to church and we do seek for a personal relationship with God. That number had dropped from 59% to 48%, less than half of Americans identified themselves in 2017 as spiritual and religious. The bottom two categories stated about the same, but the spiritual but not religious grew from 19% to 27%. Now, that was four years ago. I hope Barna does that study again next year to kind of get just an idea of where we are. But I'll tell you what, I think that number will have grown. I think today a greater number of Americans identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. Have you heard any of your friends self-identify as spiritual but not religious. I have, I have neighbors who have said, oh, I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. I don't want anything to do with church. I don't need church to find God. There is a famine of God's word today. Same group, the Barna group, Ask Americans how often they read the Bible. Two 
two-thirds of Americans read their Bible once a quarter or less. Most of them, less. Only one-third of Americans read their Bible more than once every three months. That's four times a year. Less than 10% read their Bible every day. There is a famine of God's Word today. Christian values, biblical values are almost unknown. There is a famine of God's Word today. So what do we do about that? In 1 Samuel chapter 3, that Samuel, that, that chapter starts out with these words. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Huh. This is Bible times. That's not how I usually think of Bible times. I usually think there's people on every street corner talking about God's word and people were just memorizing and, and quoting scripture to each other? Apparently not. So in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare. But you know at the very end of that chapter, verse 21, the last verse in that chapter, says the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself through his word. So we go from verse 1, where the word of the Lord is rare, to verse 21, where God reveals himself to his people. And his word is being heard in Shiloh. What made the difference? What changed in 1 Samuel chapter 3? The only thing that changed was that a 13-year-old boy stands in the temple and says, Speak, God. Your servant is listening. A 13-year-old boy who was not trained as a prophet, he was not trained as the son of a prophet, he had learned what it meant to be a priest. But he heard God calling, Samuel, Samuel. At first he didn't know. He went to Eli the priest and said, what do you want? And Eli said, I didn't call you. He did that three times until Eli finally said, it's not me, it's God. Tell God you're listening. So the next time the Lord said, Samuel, Samuel stood and said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. There is a famine in our country today of God's word and the only way that it'll change is if you stand before the temple of the Lord and say, speak Lord, your servant is listening and then you speak those words to the country to the nation, to the friends that need to hear them. There is a famine of God's word where we live today. And the only thing that will make a difference in that is you.
That's God's only plan. He does not have plan B. The only thing that'll make a difference is if you say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And then you share those words. To be Jesus in every corner of your world, you must hear God's word. And you must speak God's word. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.